Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and it's my great pleasure to again welcome Representative Jeff Roy uh, to uh, the studio uh, to discuss your re-election bid. Sure. Uh, this is going, you have completed 10 years yes, as being uh, a state representative, but I'd like to mention before that, you have given great service to the town of Franklin being on the school committee, being the chair of the school committee, being in the town, uh, on the town council, uh, and your personal effort of, of going to like the Safe Coalition, being part of that creation, and personally having an interest in each particular individual that you come across, I, I just think is absolutely outstanding. Thank you, thank you. It's. Uh this is the best job I've, I've ever had, and uh, I can tell you that um, the real motivating factor to get involved was uh, watching what happened uh, when the Twin Towers went down in 2001. That really shifted my thinking and thought process and, and encouraged me or, or really uh, got me to wake up and say, you've got to get more uh, involved in your government and you've got to make the uh, the world a better place. And I began uh, with education and uh, did, you know, 10 years on the school committee, then the town council, and now 10 years uh, up at the state house. And it's really been a focus on, you know, the power of government. I'm one who believes in the power of government to make uh, the world a better place and to provide equality of opportunity for its citizens and I've seen that both at the local and the state levels and uh, it's been a great uh, experience and uh, um, I benefited from government programs growing up uh, you know my family was uh, on food stamps and uh, I got uh, student loans to help me get an education I'm a first-generation college student although I don't look like your typical first-generation college student but uh, I was one of the first in my family to uh, go to college and not only got a, a bachelor's degree but I got a Juris Doctor degree to be a, a lawyer and it's my turn back in 2001 to give back for whatever uh, was given to me you know to to, to whom much is given, much is expected, and that's the mantra I uh, operate under. Mentioning college, you went to Worcester Polytech right. and decided engineering was not in your field, right. and then went to a college up in Maine that usually hockey players get full scholarships to go to. <laughs> you went to Bates. I went to Bates. I was a hockey player, but I did not play hockey at Bates. Uh, it was. Um, it was an interesting twist of events. I, you know, was studying engineering, always wanted to go to law school, but my dad had said, you know, uh, just in case that doesn't work out, having an engineering degree is a, a great fallback. Uh, so I studied it, and I was taking these social science classes at Worcester Polytech, and a, a professor had come up to me in my second year, and he said, uh, you know, Jeffrey, um, you're the first person who's taken more than one of my classes here at Worcester Polytech. What's your deal? I became his uh, research assistant, and uh, by the end of the second year, he said, you know, it's really not my place, but he said, I don't think uh, WPI is the best place for you. I have a friend who's a professor up at Bates who would love to have somebody like you as a research assistant. Uh, would you be interested in transferring? And uh, I did, and I'll, I'll tell you the Bates College experience uh, transformed uh, my life and uh, really set me on a on a great path and 
Uh, here I am, 40 right. years later, looking back and saying, thank God I had that conversation with that professor. Certainly it's a great part because in your 10 years, you've been chairman or co-chair of five different uh, committees that are very important in the House of Representatives. Sure. Uh, just briefly, what were they and what was the legislation that you're really proud of? Well, um, I'll talk about uh, this particular session mm -hmm. where I was the, uh, the chair of the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy. And that's the committee that takes on uh, all of the climate change and energy uh, issues. Um, so um, I got thrust into that position in the middle of uh, the governor having vetoed uh, the roadmap bill, which was the bill that would set the goals for Massachusetts to reach net zero by 2050. And that legislation uh, had been vetoed three times by the governor. And uh, the speaker appointed me the chair of the committee. He said, I hope you have been following what's been happening with the roadmap bill, because now it's in your lap and you have to get it finished. And uh, so I was appointed in February of 2021, uh, spent the first five or six weeks getting a good grasp of the roadmap, seeing what the, the, uh, the uh, things that were preventing it from happening uh, were, and uh, trying to reconcile with my Senate co-chair and the governor's office to produce a bill that he would sign. And I'm happy to report on March 26th of 2021, he signed that roadmap bill into law. And uh, that was five or six weeks into my chairmanship. So we're very proud of that. But as soon as we were done, okay, we set these goals about where Massachusetts was going to be by 2050. It was time to begin thinking about how we're going to achieve those goals. And so I embarked on a, on a course of learning uh, what the best way to achieve those goals were. And, and as, it, as it happens, uh, Massachusetts happens to be uh, situated with uh, ocean water that has the most robust wind in the entire contiguous United States. So very early on, we identified offshore wind as the potential for what could lead us uh, to having 100% uh, uh, renewable energy by 2050. And I embarked on a, a learning journey over the next six months produced a 120-page report for the Speaker of the House saying, this is where we've been on offshore wind, and this is where I think we need to go, and here's some recommendations for legislation. And uh, in September, late September of 2021, we took a, a boat trip and we took uh, legislators out to Block Island uh, down in Rhode Island and saw the first uh, offshore wind facility in Massachusetts, only five turbines, um, but it's an example of what offshore wind offers as a, as a potential. And then we uh, announced on that boat trip that our legislation was going to focus on bolstering the offshore wind industry in Massachusetts. And uh, by November, we had broken ground for the first offshore wind farm, uh, uh, commercial scale, uh, in the entire United States. President Biden had set a goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind uh, energy nationally, and uh, we put in motion the first of that uh, uh, commercial scale offshore wind 
uh, and it's uh, going to be 62 turbines, 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard. And that's the first of many wind farms that are going to be developed. So we uh, boosted uh, our, our procurements to 5.6 gigawatts. And we intend, uh, by the end of this process, to have at least 11 gigawatts of offshore wind in place off the coast of Massachusetts by, I'd say, 2035. That's more than one-third of President Biden's national goal. So uh, the legislation that we worked on over the course of the next year, and it was signed by the governor on August 11th of 2022, just a few weeks ago, uh, is an act uh, driving clean energy and offshore wind. Uh, we put in place uh, uh, demands for uh, economic development from developers of these offshore wind farms. We put in place incentives for electrifying homes, for electrifying vehicles, and really making this transition uh, by 2050 uh, something that could come alive. And that's really been my focus uh, in this particular session. In the prior session, I was the chair of the Joint Committee on Higher Education and uh, presented with uh, two problems. I don't know if you recall, but Mount Ida College had We're suddenly not, closed. Right. We're not a business. And uh, people couldn't believe it. How can a college close and then close so suddenly? And then what do you do with those students who are entering their senior year of college uh, and have no place to finish their uh, work? Uh, I do recall getting a call from President Rooney over at Dean College. She said, if you see any student uh, who has been affected by the closure of that school, you tell them that Dean College has a place for them and they can finish their studies here and get a degree from Dean. I also heard from a family in Franklin, Massachusetts, who had a son who had just completed his junior year and he had no place to go for his senior year. And I knew that we had to do something about it to prevent this from happening again to other families. And uh, so we uh, created a bill uh, uh, ensuring financial stability for higher education institutions in Massachusetts and setting uh, guardrails for if a school is going to close, you've got to give advance notice and have planning in place so that you don't leave families like that uh, in that uh, in that bind. And I remember uh, being there next to the governor when he signed that bill. I asked him for two extra pens and uh, I delivered one to Paula Rooney and I delivered one to the family and said this is uh, the response to the problem that, uh, that that created. On the heels of that, campus sexual assault was a huge deal on college campuses. So Very huge deal. Huge deal. So we came up with a comprehensive piece of legislation that would address that issue and provide support services to any student who had been the victim of campus sexual assault. And I don't know if you were aware, but at the federal level, uh, Secretary DeVos had uh, changed substantially uh, the rules and regulations on campus sexual assault. So we had to address that at the state level and we came up with a very comprehensive bill that had been worked on uh, for 10 years at the State House, but nobody could uh, bring it together. And uh, um, I was able to bring uh, both the college campuses in line with the student uh, group. Uh, Every Voice was a large student group that uh, was at conflict with the colleges, but by working with both groups and bringing them together, 
we've had a piece of legislation that we could get to the governor's desk, uh, and he signed that. And going back to my uh, term, I won't go back too much further, but uh, I did health care finance uh, for one year. And you want to talk of a complex area of uh, legislation. Um, it was a circumstance where the chairman had passed away uh, in 2018, in February of 2018. I was the vice chair of the committee. That immediately put me in the role as the chair of health care finance. And we needed to roll out a substantial health care finance bill that had been started under the previous chair. Um, I was given three months to put it all together and get it out onto the House floor. And I'm proud to say that by June of 2018, uh, we had a bill that passed uh, on the House floor. Unfortunately, we couldn't uh, reconcile it with what the Senate had done. So we didn't get health care reform that year, but we had a bill that formed the basis for what we did uh, in the, in the uh, following session. So it's been an extraordinary run. Uh, I've been put into some very um, uh, tough roles up at the State House, uh, but uh, I've met the challenge, and uh, it is my hope that with a reelection in November of 2022, uh, that the Speaker will put me back in uh, the role as the Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy Chair, uh, because there's a lot more to do in the climate space and uh, and creating energy it's probably one of the most exciting roles in government today and i'm a policy guy and uh, i am very enthusiastic about it and uh, confident the speaker will put me back there what are the climate issues that you hope as chair to uh, address in the next session uh, I, I mean it's hard for me to get my mind around uh, 2050, because I don't expect to be here at well, that Frank, point uh, in time. I hate to but, give my age away, but I'm going to be 89 <laughs> in 2050. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I hope to be telling my grandchildren stories about how we got to where we are in 2050. But uh, it's, it's very difficult to wrap your head around it. But it's such a complex problem that it's going to take a generation to fix. Take a community like Franklin, yeah. okay? And this is common for much of Massachusetts. We rely on natural gas to heat our homes and energize our homes. And uh, natural gas uh, gives off methane and is, uh, you know, polluting uh, the atmosphere. And we have to put back our reliance on it. Uh, and. I would say, you know, I can look at my ISO app, which I have on my phone, which can tell me at any given moment what the source of energy is. And I would bet you that if I looked at the ISO app right now, natural gas would be providing probably 60% of the energy in the New England area. And that's an over-reliance on natural gas. And the second point is, we do not produce natural gas in Massachusetts. We import it by pipelines from other states, and to the extent that we can't get it on a pipe, we have to import it on a ship coming from, uh, from Europe or, or, or Asia and coming into the port in Everett to deliver uh, liquefied natural gas. Um, couple problems there. 
that we don't have energy independence. We're dependent on other areas for getting that. And with the war going on in Ukraine right now, that is driving the price of natural gas to extraordinary heights. Um, people are going to see incredible jumps in their energy bills this winter. This is going to be one of the worst winters we will experience in terms of energy pricing. So the goal of our legislation to get offshore wind is to not have us rely on uh, imports for our energy. We will be the producer of energy. There's enough wind power off the coast of Massachusetts to power every home and business in Massachusetts. But let me interrupt sure. for a second. When do you anticipate, I mean, putting these uh, turbines right. 14 miles out at sea, right? I mean, yep. they're, they're going to be uh, in the ocean. Yep. I, I gather they're not going to be anywhere near shipping lanes. Nope. Uh, I, I gather that it's going to be a process. When do you expect that maybe the first turbine will, will start producing energy, or are we waiting for all, did you say five or six of them? There, uh, there'll uh, be, there's, there's seven lease areas total. Um, but with the first lease area is going to be producing energy by late 2023, early 2024. That soon? That soon. And that's enough uh, energy from the first 62 turbines is enough to power 300,000 homes. 2023? Yeah. That's next year. That's next year. We, we broke ground in November of uh, 2021 uh, for where it's going to break land. It's going to be at Covels Beach in Barnstable, so a turbine. Uh, oh, so that's going to be on land? The, the turbine, no, the turbines are out in the ocean. We're going to, they're going to bring the power from the turbines into the land into at, at Covels Beach in Barnstable. Okay. And yeah. uh, that's the first project. As soon as that project How many project's miles done, is that from the turbine to the to the land? Uh, it's probably 20 miles. Yeah, that's yeah. quite a way. So you go, you're going underground. So the, the actually the the cable yeah. from the turbines is going to be under the ocean floor. They're going yeah. they have a submarine that's going to dig a, um, a, a trench, a trench mm -hmm. to run that cable under the yeah. ocean floor. And here's the 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 best part of this story. Yeah. Brayton Point is in Somerset. Yeah. Brayton Point was the home to the last coal-fired plant in Massachusetts. And I don't know if you remember, about five years ago, they had an implosion of the towers, the cooling towers for that coal-fired no, plant. No, I don't remember. And they, they uh, you know, brought it to the ground, and there's no more coal produced. But it produced 42 acres of barren land on the ocean in Brayton Point in Somerset. Through our work with the offshore wind and by bolstering that industry and providing incentives, we have a manufacturer from Italy that's going to set up a factory on that 42 acres that's going to build all of the cables that are going to run from the turbines to land on the entire east coast of the United States. That's going to create 300 jobs yeah. And it's, it's so poetic that the last coal-fired plant, which is dirty energy, right. is going to be. to be the home of a factory 
that is producing the cables to bring clean, renewable energy um, from the offshore wind farms in Massachusetts and along uh, the East Coast. In the new uh, uh, bill that uh, passed uh, to build back a better America, and, and you were invited to the White House yes. in part of that celebration. Yes. Uh, how much is there money that's going to come to Massachusetts for this specific uh, program? There's an enormous amount of money that's going to come to Massachusetts. And the timing of us doing our legislation yeah. on August 11th, yeah. and then the Inflation Reduction Act yeah. passed within two weeks of yeah. that, right. um, puts Massachusetts poised very well to benefit from all of that money that the federal government is going to put in place. Our bill calls for electric vehicle charging station infrastructure. The uh, Inflation Reduction Act provides funding for that. Uh, it also has uh, robust incentives for offshore wind. We are miles ahead of every other state in the United States on these issues. So we're poised to get in there early. And it's no, uh, no accident that the President of the United States in August came to Brayton Point in Massachusetts to make the announcement of this huge bill. I never made that connection. It's because we have been doing this work for years and we are one of the leaders in the nation on climate and clean energy and offshore wind and everybody knows it. And uh, you know, I'm just uh, tickled and honored that uh, I'm in this position uh, for this major transition that we're underway. And that's why I'm so excited uh, for re-election to get back yeah. and continue this work. Jeff, is there another issue or subject that you'd like to briefly uh, tell the people about? Well, I, I'd love to talk a bit about uh, uh, the Safe Coalition and substance use disorder because that's mm -hmm. something that's been uh, very important in this community um, and uh, goes back to 2014 and 2015 when uh, the problem of substance use disorder really uh, came home when in the month of May of 2015 we lost five people under the age of 30 to overdose deaths. And uh, that was really an awakening that we had to do something in our community. And uh, together with uh, Councilor Robert DeLorco, Jim Derrick, and Jen Knight, uh, who's now Jen Levine, uh, we put together a coalition uh, that grew from a small community group to now it's a, a uh, nonprofit corporation that serves eight communities that provides services that absolutely did not exist in this community, services and supports and education programs, uh, working with the schools, working with the Rentham District Court to provide opportunities to get people on the road to recovery. Have we solved the substance use disorder uh, problem? Absolutely not. Um, but we have ways to get people on a pathway to recovery. Uh, and that's been some uh, incredible work, and I've been honored to uh, work with these folks to get this up and running. We even have a, a recovery home uh, that's uh, in Rentham. We didn't have any services in this area, 
and now we have uh, a lot of services that are available. And, uh, and as you, know, you say, you were there at the beginning and very instrumental in, yeah. in creating uh, this organization, right. uh, which uh, frankly is probably a national uh, example of what to do right. Exactly, and uh, one of the other things um, is getting local aid for these programs. And uh, each, each of the last years, I've been able to get $50,000 into the state budget to help fund the SAFE Coalition. So yeah. that's $250,000 that this organization has seen and is putting to good use, and most importantly, is saving lives. And very quickly, you, at the beginning of this legislative uh, term, uh, found that uh, if someone's property was on the tax uh, roll and delinquent in paying the taxes and the town had sent out a delinquent notice, it was possible for anyone, myself, to go pay the taxes and then own the land and you introduced a bill to correct that situation. Right. How, where does that bill stand? Did it pass or where so, was so it So the stand? bill was put into a study uh, at the Revenue Committee. They wanted to look at it uh, a little closer. It will be back on the docket in January because it's one of the most unfair things that I have ever seen uh, being uh, in local government and state government. The fact that you could pay a $6,000 tax balance on a property that's worth $300,000 and be able to keep the equity that's in that property based on six thousand dollars is is just uh... it's just unfair and it and it tends to uh... harm the people who are most uh... vulnerable and you know need a home and, and it's uh, actually yeah, happened people it has have happened. people have actually done this yeah i've yeah. sat with uh, right. uh... two families who were affected by this and uh, I've sat with a law professor who wrote a law review article on it. Um, we have, uh, I've worked with a law firm that has been suing uh, to get these properties back and uh, put these people back into their homes. But the law has to be changed. It's yeah. fundamentally unfair. If you didn't pay your mortgage and your mortgage foreclosed on you, what would happen in that context is uh, your, your mortgage company could sell the property, but any excess beyond what you owe to the mortgage company, we'll go goes to you. To you. Yep. And why don't we do that in the tax yeah. context? Well, uh, Jeff, if people would like to know more about your campaign, sure. uh, I'll reach you. Uh, how can they do that? Well, one of the easiest ways is to go to jeffreyroy.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-O-Y.com. That's uh, my website that has, uh, it has a contact button on there. It also has more information about me. I also have email at the Statehouse, which is jeff.roy at mahouse.gov. And uh, they want to call me. My district line is 508-520-3100. My state house number is 617-722-2030, and uh, I'm happy to uh, connect with people and uh, try to help them out of any uh, problem they have. Great, great. Well, hey, thank you. Uh, have a great campaign. Uh, see you at the polls, and uh, we would like to say that uh, in Franklin uh, there is early voting. If you want to vote by mail, you must ask for a ballot. They're not going to automatically send you one. 
uh, and on uh, election day, which is November eighth, Tuesday, yep. uh, the uh, gymnasium at the high, Franklin High School will have all nine precincts, and I believe it's open six to eight. Right? Six a.m. to eight. Six a.m. to eight a.m. Eight p.m. Eight p.m. Yep. Uh, Fourteen hours. And the and the town clerk has assured me that there will be reserved parking spots that you can drive yep. into that teachers will not be parked in. She and does there is no school great, that day. Nancy does a great job with that. And uh, um, I think typically the school does a, a professional development yes. day to lessen yes. the uh, need for parking there. But uh, that should not be an obstacle for anyone. Let's make voting accessible and easy. And I think by having the early voting and the mail-in voting and uh, uh, election day voting, I think we've made it very easy. And we've seen increases in turnout, and that's what it's all about. This is Frank Falvey and uh, Jeff Roy thanking you for watching and listening to this program. This program was made possible by your Franklin friends and neighbors. Good folks, just like you. Thanks for supporting Franklin TV. And thanks for watching.